welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week we're closing our loose trilogy of spooky school stories with a touch of Satanism. Our guest is better known for his comedy than his horror. Stephen Lloyd has spent a career writing sitcoms, many of them the absolute top of the tree. But now he turns his imagination to something bloodier and a whole lot more pentagramish. Friend of the Devil is a whip-fast tale of ritual weirdness and Reagan ideology set in a privileged New England boarding school during the 80s, and I'll let Stephen further flesh out that synopsis. We talk about Satanism and D&D and the aftermath of Vietnam and all that stuff that made the 80s such a goddamn good time for so many people, but we also look at how the tendrils reach on into the present. Stephen discusses the difference between writing horror and writing comedy. He explains the inner workings of a TV writer's room and how penning a novel in isolation is a whole other thing. It's always good to get some insight from different angles of the writing world, methinks. Remember, if you want to support this show and get access to tons of extra content, you can subscribe to Patreon. Click the link in the show notes or simply visit patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod. It's very easy. Long-term listeners may have noticed that I'm mentioning the Patreon more in the intro than I used to. Sorry about that, but let's face it, my wife's gone back to school, I'm now the main breadwinner, and I'm not too proud to ask for your money. Plus, it's only 30 seconds of time. Or it would be if I stopped talking about it. Oh no, now I'm in this whole meta loop, talking about talking. Oh shit, that's like 45 seconds now. Christ! Shake it off, Neil. Come with me to a school on an island where the jokes are cruel and there is no laughter track to soften the blow. Let's talk scared. Hi, Stephen, and welcome to Talking Scared. Hi, Neil. Happy Memorial Day over on your side of the pond. Oh, well, thank you very much. Thank you for taking the time. What, what, what are your plans for the, the big occasion? Not much. Uh, a friend of my daughter's is coming over um, later. I think they might uh, swim, and I think I promised to grill something. So <clears throat> I think I'll be uh, scraping some you know, grill grates and getting, uh, figuring out something to, uh, to cook. So that's basically it. That sounds beautifully American to my outsider <laughs> ear. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, thank you for joining me. Cause, I mean, I know it's a holiday for you, so I do appreciate it. Oh, no, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me on your show. Well, I know you're doing this kind of at the end of a, a whole media c- campaign because your book, Friend of the Devil, actually came out back at the start of May, which actually seems an age ago in post-COVID times. Yeah. I hope you haven't burned out all of your thoughts on the book. <laughs> um, me too. No, I think I I can probably come up with a couple fresh ones, or at least recycle some of the old ones and make them seem you know uh, seem new. So, well, as I was saying off air, it's more my problem because right? I've now got the the unenviable task of trying to think up different questions to ask you. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. At least the first question is easy because your book, as I say, is called Friend of the Devil, and I wonder if you could kick us off by telling the listeners a little bit about it, something to start us off on a kind of informed foot? Uh, sure. Um, it's principally, I guess, a detective story. It follows Sam Gregory, who's a uh, uh, Vietnam vet 
pretty recently returned from the war because it, the book takes place in the very early 1980s. Um, Sam now works as a uh, investigator for an insurance company, and they've insured a priceless medieval manuscript uh, that has gone missing from the private collection of this library on this very exclusive uh, boarding school called Danforth Putnam, <clears throat> which uh, you know is for super super wealthy private school. They have their own island off the coast of Massachusetts, and he goes there to see if the book was stolen, if there's fraud, basic insurance stuff. You know, he, he doesn't feel super comfortable on this. Uh, in this school full of these rich kids. Um, but he eventually starts to discover that there's some witchy stuff about the book and the school and the island. And then some very bad stuff starts to happen. Meanwhile, there's sort of a parallel investigation going on by one of the students at Danforth Putnam, uh, this uh, girl, Harriet, who is a bit of a nerd. She's the uh, head of the D&D club and the astronomy club and she and her friends get bullied a lot and she's sick of it so she's conducting her own investigation into bullying for the school paper and in the course of her investigation she starts to uncover some of the same witchy stuff Sam does uh, their investigations eventually intersect uh, and lead to what I hope is a, a pretty shocking twist at the end well, yeah, and that's the one thing we won't talk about because it, it stopped me in my tracks. I had no idea that was coming, so we, we won't spoil oh, good. that for the listeners. Um, that's the book kind of introduced then, but I think with you more than most guests, um, I think you need some contextualization as well uh, before we dive into your story. So you've got a background in TV, in TV writing and TV producing, and I'm always, well, I'm increasingly interested on this show to talk about people with different writing backgrounds, different careers and, and kind of creative trajectories, because it's creating this nice collage of, of like creative life out there, um, which is interesting, taken through a horror lens. So that's a very long winded way of asking. Can you tell us a little bit, a bit about yourself, your career, everything kind of pre novel writing? Um. Sure. I, uh, I guess I, I started in, um, uh, features. I, I was working as a, as an assistant to a director, uh, for an independent movie in New York city. And while I was there, I wrote a, um, an animated feature on spec, not, not a, not, not a great idea. Um, but I did manage to get it to the producer of that film who got it to an entertainment lawyer and sold it to Warner brothers, feature animation and I ended up working for them for a couple of years. Um, and after that I segued into television. Um, I wrote some spec scripts, got my agent to, um, get me an audition for a, a small cable show that I worked on. And from there I started working on network shows, um, and then, um, ended up working in TV, principally sitcoms for, uh, uh, for a, a long time. I worked on uh, Just Shoot Me and uh, How I Met Your Mother for many, many years. And then, you know, most recently, uh, Modern Family and to, for the last six years of its run. And you wrote for Modern Family, right? Yes. Uh, for I, the last six years. Hmm? I've never understood what the difference is between writing 
and producing at that level. The, the words often seem to be used interchangeably. Yeah, <laughs> it, it is a weird, um, it's more of just a sort of a, a title thing. As you, in television, as you um, go on in your career, you basically go up a ladder. Um, you start as what's called maybe a term writer or a staff writer, and then you go to what's called story editor and then exec and then executive story editor and then co-producer and then producer, supervising producer, and then executive producer. Mostly those are just title bumps and, and um, they, they don't necessarily confer that much more responsibility. As a writer in television, you have certain obligations that I don't think you have as much in features where the director handles a lot of that. You do the producing side of it is you're involved in casting sessions, different, you go to the production meetings, the department heads say, what do you think of this, um, you know, prop, or what do you think of this costume? What are you thinking here for this particular set? All those stuff. So those, those, that's where this sort of producing thing comes in, but it is really the show runner, um, who is usually the creator of the show who has final say all of all over all of those things. Um, okay. Um, who is also a writer. So the writer, so, so in television writers do take on a lot of the producing responsibilities that in features, typically they don't. Right. That's really interesting. Cause as I say, like I'm just, I'm not even an outsider. I just know nothing about that kind of world. My, my only idea of how a writing room works is, is built on watching episodes of 30 rock. <laughs> and that I imagine must be a very strange creative environment because you're not it's the opposite of like the solitary artist you're just sit how does it work do you just sit there kind of spewing ideas at each other what pretty much i mean they're all you know right different writers rooms work differently depending on the showrunner because the you know different showrunners have have different you know, management styles i guess but it's basically that it's basically as you said it's basically a group of people who are in a in a room and then you know at the beginning of the season maybe you'll talk generally about an arc for a season you know so romantic arcs or or professional arcs or wh whatever you know story threads you think are going to carry you through the season sometimes and some some showrunners don't even you know do that and then you'll start pitching general story ideas which you'll get a slate of and everybody's just yelling those out and the the showrunner or showrunners will say i like these ideas now we've got basic kernels to work from and then you say all right i think we you know i want to go drill a little bit deeper into this particular story idea maybe half the staff or maybe all the staff will weigh in on that and try to basically come up with a um rough story beats for that particular story. And then we'll be assigned to one of the writers, usually, to go off and write an outline, which depending on its level of detail, sometimes you'll get an afternoon, sometimes you'll get a couple days. And then you'll come back, then everybody will weigh in on the outline, and then you'll go off and um, on some shows write one draft, on some shows you'll write a draft, get notes, go off and write a second draft. And then the staff will look over the draft and go page by page and look at every line. And that process continues through the production week. Once you hear the actors read it, you also, you know, say, oh, that didn't really work or that did work, or I think we can make this clearer, et cetera, all the way to it's shot. So it is, as you said, is a very, very 
collaborative environment and um, the opposite of the of the the solitary environment that you have when you're writing a book where it's just you at a keyboard and and nobody else. Yeah, and and was that shift a positive thing for you or was it a daunting thing? Both. I think it was a little daunting at first. I think a lot of the the things about book writing were daunting um the solitary nature also you when you're writing a book you have to think about so many things that are not really part of script writing, description, symbolism, all, all these other things that just don't find their way into a, a script. Um, but it was also very liberating to think that, uh, I, you know, you can really do whatever you want. You know, there's not, in my case, there was no real time pressure on it. I wasn't thinking, ah, I got to hand this in by Friday. Um, so I found it, uh, I really enjoyed it. I thought that it was, it was very liberating for me. Oh well, good. I mean, because I, I was, <laughs> I sort of imagine that a writing room and the way you described it is this kind of monstrously egotistical place. <laughs> that's that's fair. <laughs> and then you get to retire to your own room and just be, just deal with your own ego, you know, which right. which can be, again, either a wholly positive or wholly daunting thing. But <laughs> but no, I mean, to be fair. I could easily, and don't worry, I won't, but I, I'm such an obsessive fan of Modern Family that I could easily do a whole 90 degree on this episode and not talk about horror <laughs> at all, you know. But, I mean, yeah, that's a whole, that's a different show. But I'll just, I'll just say this. Words that you were involved in writing or words that you wrote got me and my wife through the first year of lockdown. So uh, that, that's, my, that's my first just, just general applause. That is so nice of you to say, and I'm I'm so <laughs> and I'm I'm so glad to hear that. And I hope that's true. I hope they were my words and not somebody else's. Which is, I, I hope they were crazy. too. Yeah, between between Modern Family and Shit's Creek, it kept me and my wife from murdering each other. Um, <laughs> that is no small feat. But yes. you say you know you hope they're your words. I've got a feeling they are because I feel like I've got a feeling for your voice now, having read uh, Friend of the Devil, and I've read in other interviews where you say it wouldn't have been much fun to write a comedic novel. But you must realise that there's a lot of humour in Friend of the Devil, kind of particularly in Sam, the protagonist's dialogue. There's a lot of kind of laconic wit. And I wonder, was that a kind of unavoidable legacy of your career in comedy? Or were you aiming for that tone? That's a great question. I I think both. I think part of it is... Part of it is just my training. You know, if you the you do start when you're a comedy writer to think in terms of certain rhythms, um, and I think Sam especially falls into those a a little bit. He has, I, I hope, a kind of sardonic wit. Um, it's part of. I think it's also part of the the genre when you have you know that that uh, you, when you look at you know, Philip Marlowe or other mm. detectives. I mean, they have that kind of wisecracky um, angle. Hopefully it's not, you know, a complete ripoff of that, but it is, it is sort of in that, in that mold. Um, and I think part of it was me wanting to cut the tension a little bit in that there are so many d- dark things that happen in the, in the book. It was an opportunity for me to, <clears throat> I, I wanted to find places where, with a little bit of humor, you could sort of lighten, lighten the mood a little bit. It's something in TV they always call a a, a treacle 
cutter. In TV, you would use that to say you're going to cut a a you know sort of schmaltzy emotional moment with a joke. In this case, I was trying to use it to cut a you know um, some of the tension with you know hopefully see in some of the things like you know maybe even to sort of increase the tension a little bit. Like Sam is is joking around where sort of dark stuff is happening. Yeah, okay. Because there is some very dark stuff happening, and, and like I say, it's a it's a, a an unusual melding of of comedic dialogue well comedic is too strong a word i think sardonic is the best word the word that you chose um it's snappy it's terse it's to the point it's very sarcastic and vinegary but the plot itself is unambiguously horror and i mean it's an obvious question but having worked in comedy for so long what what prompted the turn to horror in your debut novel I don't know. <clears throat> I'm not sure I have a good answer to that other than that it just I had an I had an idea uh, that I thought would be uh, fun to write, and I like the mystery. And and I've, I I gravitate towards um, you know, speculative fiction. Anyway, you know I'm a big Neil Gaiman fan, and uh, I like a lot of uh, not necessarily strictly horror, but a lot of uh, sci-fi and other speculative fiction, and so. I wanted the opportunity to write something like this, and I just had an idea for it. Really, it wasn't it wasn't by design. Like I'm going to write a horror film, and then I horror, excuse me, a horror novel, and then came up with the idea. I had the idea and just decided to take a crack at it in my spare time, without even really necessarily knowing that there was a book there. It was really just something I just started in my spare time, mm. and it just got longer over time. And I was extraordinarily fortunate in that I was able to get it to. Um, uh, Putnam and they were willing to work with me to expand it into a novel. Well, yeah, I meant to ask you about that because you you mentioned in the afterward that that you developed this from a I think as you phrase it a long short story and that you you know you're you ready to help with that. Yes, that's an interesting process in itself. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Like, what was the initial story compared to the novel, and and what was the process of expanding it? Sure. the The initial story was really just Sam. There was no uh, Harriet in it, and um, the uh, and the ending was very different, which I can't describe too much without giving some stuff away. Um, and I gave it to my managers, who gave it to a literary agent, <clears throat> Richard Abate, in New York, who gave who gave it to Mark Tavani, who's an editor at Putnam. And Mark said. I like this. It's just too short as a book. If you can figure out a way to expand this to novel length, uh, you know, I'll con- I'll consider it. And I really struggled with that at first because, you know, every time I reread anything that I've written, I want to cut stuff out <laughs> um, because I want to make it move. And I think that is also a legacy of of TV writing because you're, you know, especially in Modern Family, we were always cramming so much plot into you know, just, you know, 22 minutes that it is, you just really want to keep things going. And because this is also a thriller, I wanted it to be tight. And I was very afraid that it would get sluggish if I just expanded it sort of arbitrarily. And I was talking about it with my wife and she said, you know, you might want to think about like a whole new character, um, which is why I thought, oh, well, maybe then coming to it from a second point of view from one of the kids at this creepy school, Harriet, uh, would be a, a good idea. Um, and so I pitched various ways to do that with Mark, and he he worked with me 
tirelessly and very patiently to build that into a um, um, the novel that it is, and to 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 change the ending in a way that um, I think possibly promises future stories. Oh, interesting. Yeah, good to know. Despite all that expansion, though, it, it remains a, a very, very fast-paced book. You've got these sort of short, snappy chapters. It starts almost kind of in media res, you know, and every chapter is almost exclusively focused on a single scene, a single place, a single character. And I don't want to overbeat the same drum, but, you know, is that derived from the approach you learned in TV, that that more economic, efficient kind of storytelling? Um, it's certainly possible. Um <clears throat> Because yeah, as you mentioned, like it is, you definitely don't, you know, the sitcom is in, is in a way a very unforgiving form, you know, that you have to cram so much into. It, it may not seem like it, but you, you know, especially on the shows that I worked on, there is not a lot of room for um, fat. You know, mm -hmm. if you if if something doesn't serve the story, it really has to go. You just don't have time, and that is that was definitely ground into me um, in my uh, career as a, as a TV writer, probably to a, to a bad degree, um, to the extent that my editor, Mark, at a certain point had to say to me, you know, you, he said, you can take your time with some things here, or as he put it, you know, you can get your writer jollies <laughs> in certain mm -hmm. places, like get a little bit more introspective or philosophical, take a little bit more time with, with some things, which was fun to do, but I felt sometimes I didn't, uh, I worried, am I being too self-indulgent here? If I'm going on too long about a, you know, the, 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 you know, as I like to, you know, joke about the, you know, my description of the, the crisp October day, like you, you don't get to do that in a TV <laughs> script. Like nobody wants to yeah. hear your description. Of, you know, New England exterior day. That's it. Anything more than that. Like you, you're just, you know, you're just going to have, you know, the grips yelling at you like, well, I did, who cares what it looks like? You know, that's their department to sort of fill it out. So um, I think uh, he said I had to actually sort of, he suggested, and I think to good effect, that I actually had to slow it down in some places. Um, and I, it was just for me just trying to find the balance between not sacrificing the pace, but also finding places where I could open up the characters a little bit more, get a little interior or philosophical introspective so that you're, you care about the characters and find them interesting enough that you care what happens to them. Well, uh, yeah, and... Take it from me, you still keep the propulsion without a doubt. It's one of the fastest pace books I've ever read. So even with the sacrifices you've made, you still you still keep that economy of storytelling. Um, and it is interesting, you know, hearing you talk then about how the rigours of a certain kind of writing are hard to... Th those shackles are hard to throw off. Because I, I had a similar thing when I... I spent like 10 years of my life where the only writing I ever did was incredibly technical, theoretical, academic writing. And then when I came to try and write fiction or, or even to try and write more kind of pop journalism, it just took me about two years to learn to <laughs> pare it down and to be informal and to get to, ta to find a different tone. It wasn't really a pace issue for me, it was more of a tonal issue. You, you get trapped by habits, don't you? And certain, certain, the, the medium starts to determine the message. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. 
This episode is supported by Novelic, the book app for people who want their suggestions from fellow readers, not an algorithm. Novelic is the perfect way to curate your TBR list with real recommendations from fellow-minded readers broken down into genre, including, yeah, horror and all adjacent delights. You can download Novelic for free on iOS or Android devices and start browsing right away or join a book club for more in-depth chat on your favourite topic. The Talking Scared book club is up and running for Patreon members. Try Novelic for a nicer way to find your next read. So we've talked a lot about craft. Now onto the story. Um, slightly more fun bit for you to talk about, I bet. So Friend of the Devil is set, as you mentioned, in this prestigious boarding school. They've got their own island. And it's also set in the 1980s. Both the geography and the time period are interesting. So why there and why then? Um, the there, I think, has to do with, well, a few things. Uh, one, New England has a, a distinctly witchy flavor <laughs> in um, American folklore and even in, in, in American literature with, you know, Poe and Hawthorne, et cetera. And the you know, uh, and historically with the, the Salem witch trials, um, which by the way, <clears throat> this book does, you know, not refer to specifically, it refers to some fictional trials that happened mm-hmm. before the Salem witch trials. I think in the actual Salem witch trials, nobody was actually burned, but the, um, these, these refer to some made up uh, more gruesome earlier trials on this made up Island and new England also with these new England Boarding schools um, that those evoke a certain old money, um, you know, privilege and sort of uh, you know, you know, American aristocracy that has you know tentacles that extend back um, into the very early days of of America, which I wanted to um, evoke. So that I think is part of why New England um, also. Just personally, though I went to a big public school in Los Angeles, a lot of my friends from college went to those New England boarding schools and had stories about them, which um, <laughs> which weren't as grisly as the ones that I detailed here, but always sort of shocked me like, oh my God, these kids and literally were kids, you know, 15 to 18, what they were running around and doing at these, you know, posh New England places with no parental supervision uh, seemed chilling and is even more chilling now that I'm a parent with with preteen daughters. So I wanted to get that in there. I mean, then in terms of why the early 80s, part of it was just it resonated for me because it was there. And also without getting into things that sort of spoil things, Sam in many ways represents you know, nothing new, unfortunately, which are these soldiers, he's a Marine, returning kind of broken from their war experience and not getting the help that they need, which is true today. And it was, you know, certainly true in the uh, early 80s. I remember these guys coming back from Vietnam when PTSD was really just beginning to be talked about, but we're just not getting the care. And Obviously, they weren't the first either. That that goes back as long as there have been wars. Yeah, and I will. I'll come to Sam later on because he's a he's an interesting character with some unexpected characteristics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah. 
set in the book in that time and that place gives you quite a lot of opportunity for satire. Um, <laughs> now, I'm very guilty on this show of imposing meaning that isn't there. But it, it, it really felt like you were going after this kind of Reagan era ideology because you, you've got this school with this very stratified kind of hierarchy of these entitled elites and this this underclass of orphans. Is there a political angle to, to your choices? Yeah, <laughs> it was. I mean, you know, for me personally, because I remember the early 80s, this sort of shift away from, uh, you know, the youth culture of the 60s and the 70s was defined really by, you know, uh, was was left-leaning, mm-hmm. anti-authoritarian. And, and, and then I, I remember even as a kid in the 1980s, seeing um, this shift to the right that I found troubling for me and, you know, and weird where you would see, you know, well, I'm actually thinking now sort of like my freshman year of college, seeing being in a political science class and having a kid next to me, like, you know, an 18 year old stand up with his arms folded, you know, bearded in his polo shirt, like screaming at one of the political science teachers for being like too liberal. Like, what? why are students yelling at the teachers for being too liberal? What is going on? For me, that was definitely part of it. That sort of, you know, creepy slide towards uh, um, authoritarianism and, um, you know, all, all the things that, all the seeds that were planted in the 80s um, that didn't themselves come from nowhere, but yeah, that I witnessed firsthand. Yeah, it's almost like the, the the children of the '60s could only rebel by being conservative. Yeah, yeah. You have like going back to television. Yeah, you have your Alex Keaton sort of. They made a, a joke of that, but it was uh, uh, in Family Ties. But yeah. it's like fuck you, Dad. I'm going to law school. <laughs> that kind of thing. I mean, there's one student called Bernard or Bernard who's like a Republican hawk in infancy. He's like, yeah, he's entitled as hell and wholly without compassion to anyone else um and it kind of reminds me of we, we have these young conservatives in the uk like there's literally like a a, a kind of party within the party of, of young conservatives young tories and i always look at them and think like what does your life have in store for you if when you're 18 you're already advocating repressive politics like where are you going to go from this yeah and i think you're you're right to sort of, or at least the balance with me, I look at it sort of psychologically when you say it's a form of rebellion. I mean, that that I do think is true of, of Bernard. You say like, why are you like this? You know, mm. what, 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 why? I don't think as a child, certainly at that age, your political views are formed from like, you know, sincerely sort of looking at the world and weighing things. They come from a much more emotional place. Uh, and in Bernard's case, it is, you know, he, he's a tragic character in many, many ways, but it's his rejection of everything around him, um, uh, you know, and he is able, given the emerging political client to climate, to sort of cloak that in just an embracing Reaganism and everything else that's going on in the early 80s. And it's really easy to read these characters as um, 
not not stereotypes, but kind of political nodes, if you know what I mean. You know, but but it, it's much more serious than that, really, because th- this shit is is exerting an influence now, isn't it? You know, like now, yeah. 30, 40 years later, we've got these people are in power and they're breeding a whole mm-hmm. new generation of 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 incredibly conservative young people um mm-hmm. and it does it, it, it there, there is an element of the book as as, as fleet-footed as it is that it does have a, have a somber tone to it that, that there are schools like this out there that are just breeding this you know producing this this conveyor belt of of the next generation of repressive authority figures <laughs> Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah. um, the other thing about the eighties, of course, is the the supposed and omnipresent threat of Satanism, <laughs> particularly yeah. involving schools and young people. There's things like the McMartin preschool incident. I I spoke to an author last year around this time called Clay McLeod Chapman, who wrote her book called Whistle. Oh, I always forget the title of it. Whisper down the lane. Um, it's a great book, which which both kind of satirizes and and perpetuates the terror of Satanism and that kind of thought. I, I do wonder, do you have any memories of, of that time, of, of that furore? For sure. I mean, I remember when the McMartins and everybody was so convinced of their guilt and all these crazy things that there was a hysteria about it. And I also remember it being linked to you know, Dungeons and Dragons provoking this fear. Oh, there are these kids that are disappearing into, you know, sewers. There's also a subplot. There's a, not a subplot. There, there's a um, scene in tunnels in the in the book. Um, and there were always tunnels that people were disappearing into underneath schools and things to, you know, and Dungeons and Dragons was leading them astray into sort of Satanistic things that were obviously nonsense, but it was, it was being, actively investigated by people i don't think they ever found anything but i mean it was you know it it led to you know ruining a lot of people's lives these accusations yeah but you you have no memories of bit rituals or bit or or even worse um being taken to a therapist and told that you have memories of rituals (laughs) (laughs) i personally know i never was actually taken to a therapist and had yeah my my uh recovered memories where yeah i was forced to participate in any kind of satanic rituals yeah so sinister (laughs) so sinister i mean terrifying you go full throttle kind of into the traditional satanic conspiracy of this story so there are rituals there is magic there are child sacrifices and all that jazz but at times Mm. it also feels like you're kind of you know, satirizing the satanic panic. And the D&D is an interesting example because, as you say, D&D was widely stigmatized as this kind of gateway drug to all kinds of satanic apparatus. Whereas in your book, Harriet, this this student journalist, actually uses the skills she's learned from D&D to kind of, in one one section, um, overcome the threat of evil. And I, I wondered... Are we supposed to take this book as dark as it is, as a little bit tongue in cheek about some of these issues? I, I, I hope so, and, and certainly the the satanic threats that do emerge are not where they were usually looked for in the eighties. Mm-hmm. They're not in D anD D. They're not with children listening to heavy metal music backwards or whatever the other nonsense they were. They're 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 more 
sinister. They're located more in, in, well, I, I, I can't actually say more without giving, mm-hmm. giving stuff away, but there is, I hope uh, a little bit of a tongue in cheek quality to it. Yes. In this book. Good, good. Yeah. Because I, I, I kept bouncing between around the tones because you hit all the touch points of, of satanic stuff, but it never feels <laughs> like you are, how do I put it? Buying into it is almost as a, as a serious proposition. It feels like right. even the characters who are kind of participating in it, they feel a little bit ridiculous. And I think a lot of that's shown in Sam's reaction towards them. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that's fair to say. Well, and, and one, of the, one of those tongue-in-cheek things that I, I like to do is, I don't know if I'm reading too much into this, but you seem to litter the text with a few little kind of nods, I suppose, to either either media or the prevailing culture around this sinister stuff so like there's um a particularly odious character called mrs lee who has a cat mm-hmm. called crowley and i'm right. assuming that's a reference to Alistair. Alistair crowley and stuff like that um yeah and there's a lot more I, I, am i right in seeing these little references that are littered throughout the text uh, I think so. I tried to put little Easter eggs in there, you know, that are probably mostly just for me, but there's like a few anagrams in there and there are definitely some references either to figures in 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 horror or in other mysteries or uh, especially in New England American literature, mm-hmm. um, especially horror literature. Um, so yeah, there are little little references in there so thank you for catching some of them no i, I was convinced it was going to be when i was reading one character's name who does turn out to be an anagram i am writing that aren't I? that a certain character's name in this is an anagram i have picked up on that correctly you have good right because yes. it's it's never actually massively spelled out but i i thought i'd spotted it like eagle-eyed listeners may pick up on that <laughs> um i was convinced it was yeah. going to be some anagram of cotton mather and i was looking everywhere for it <laughs> And just like and thinking it's got to be here somewhere. And because the, the, the letters of the word seem close enough that it could be, but it's not quite. And I was like, there's going to be Cotton Mather in this somewhere. <laughs> no, no, you are right. There's one character whose name is, is, is an anagram. Actually, is a double anagram because it comes up twice. One one is really snuck in there. So that was really just for me. But <laughs> no one else would get that. But. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, let, let's talk finally about Sam. So Sam is our protagonist. As you mentioned, he's a Vietnam vet. Um, he's got some issues. Um, mm-hmm. I find him an interesting choice of, well, one one of two protagonists because he's sort of a relic of a previous generation um, amongst yeah. you know these kids, and he has sort of unavoidably conservative views. and And there's a there's a one scene, for example, where a young kid is showing showing him that he's got an infected tongue ring, and Sam says. Yeah, yeah, peer pressure made me do stuff too. Then shows him his Semper Fidelis marine tattoo. Um, and, and it seems an unusual choice to make a conservative military man your hero in a story full of, of kids. Yeah. You know, Sam, as you pointed out, is, is, a, is a complicated character. So it's, it's hard to discuss him uh, fully Indeed. without... without- giving some stuff away well let's put it this way let's talk about the sam that the reader thinks they're dealing with for the bulk of the story well he is he is a counterpoint i think to a lot of of the kids at danforth putnam in that he is working class he is from a 
different generation. You know, he's somebody who, you know, probably grew up in 1950. So he's seen all of the significant upheavals in American culture that led to 1980, the 50s, the 60s, the, the, the 70s. So, you know, the Eisenhower years of, you know, Rara, and then, you know, the, the, the complete reversal that was the 60s and then, you know, the hedonism of the 70s and now he's here. So at, and none of that is on the radar of these kids in the early 80s. They're, like all teenagers, the world is what it is right, you know, today mm-hmm. for them. And so he is bringing all of that previous history and a completely different um, socioeconomic perspective um, to this island full of early 80s kids. But there are lots of scenes where, where Sam uses direct violence against these kids. <laughs> and it, yeah. many yeah. of them deserve it. Bernard, for example. Right. Um, but in some cases, it is just a big, tough guy kind of throwing his weight yeah. around. And it got me thinking because the book features bullying as quite a central theme. And I thought that yeah. when you then in, inject a big, tough Marine who's using physical force to kind of, you know, manage kids. That seems an interesting detail to throw in there. Yeah. Well, um, thank you. <laughs> um, and I think part of that is, you know, there's there's a part of that is a function of the how damaged a character Sam is because of his own experiences. He that that is how he reacts to things because of his um his wartime experience and other things that we learn about him later on i think it also is uh back then you know certainly less so than now a kind of violent reaction towards kids was tolerated in an insane way you know what what football coaches did to kids back then etc there there was a, a level in which just you know violence towards children was really accepted and tolerated in a way. Um, and not then for the first time. I mean, I think that there's a scene where Harriet, and this is true, just, you know, is researching football um, in, in the, in the library and football before it was a professional sport, when it was just a, a school sport um, was so violent that in, in 1905, I think 19 kids in one season, 19 kids died, died like over a hundred, I think were critically injured, but 19 were killed so that Teddy Roosevelt had to come out. Teddy Roosevelt, not a soft and cuddly guy (laughs) had to come out and say, can we make this sport less, less violent? So it is, there is a weird, um, you know, strain, I think in American society that is, where, and certainly it was true in the early eighties, you know, I think there's, there's less tolerance for it now where it was, it was just considered okay for adults to be, you know, borderline violent with children. Um, and Sam is, is a relic of that, uh, to a degree, but he's also, and again, unfortunately I can't spoil stuff. I mean, there's, there's more to him that we learn that explains why he's more comfortable being abusive in that way than, <laughs> than he should be. Of course. And and yeah, we've alluded enough to that twist. Um, 
all I'll say is that the the book does end on a on a reveal that leaves things quite well poised for more. Do you have plans to write more about Sam and Harrier or anything else in this world? I I, sh- I would like to. I had a lot of fun um, writing them. I, I they for me have a very interesting relationship, and um, I would like to dig deeper into that and go forward. So uh, yes, I I, I I do have aspirations to write more. Um, so. I guess I would leave it at that. I have, okay. I have aspirations to write. Okay, okay. Because it would be interesting to see where this story went and this partnership between them now that certain cards have been laid on the table, um, you know, without having to deal with the baggage of that setup, just to go, okay, here we go. This is the situation. Yeah, so best of luck with that. Um, can you recommend a book for my listeners um, and tell us tell us why? Um, yes, I was thinking about that and... D- do you mean specifically horror, or can it be anything? It can be anything, basically. I mean, it's a horror. It's a it's a it's a macabre inclined audience, but you know we're a broad church, so so tell us whatever you think <laughs> we should read. Well, one thing I'm thinking it may just be because I it's one of my favorite books, and that I happen to be rereading it is, um, and it has horror elements in it, but I think it is mostly I think it's more considered science fantasy would would be <laughs> the Book of the New Sun by Gene Wolfe. Oh wow! Okay, um, I don't know, which was written, I think, around the, like in about 1980 or, or early. Um, it's just a fascinating, fascinating book, um, and it is you know though he is well known to people I think who write, uh, who read science fiction, he's not well known to people who don't, and it's a crime because he's just a, a genius um, and. You know, he's somebody, you know, Neil Gaiman reveres, Ursula Le Guin called him, you know, our Melville based on this. It's just a fantastic um, journey um, for this uh, uh, character. Um, One thing I like about it and that I found very inspiring about it is that you think you are reading one genre and then quickly realize you are reading a, a different one or a mashup of ones. And it is just such a rich, rich book with so many ideas and also just a really sort of compelling journey for this character. Um, I think for anybody who hasn't, um, you know, anybody who has heard of that book will say, oh, well, of course, that's that's a, a classic and a masterpiece. Everybody's heard of that. <laughs> but but um, anybody who hasn't heard of it, please read it because it's an amazing, amazing book. It's one that I bought when I was in my early teens, and I, I I read Lord of the Rings and fell in love with it. And I read some David Gemmell and some other kind of entry level science fiction writers. Sorry, fantasy writers, whatever fantasy fantasy science fiction. And then I I bought what's the first one? Is it The Shadow of the Torturer, the first book? Right. I I bought it and it baffled me, and I wasn't ready for it because I didn't realize when I was that young that that sci-fi fantasy could be so challenging i thought it was all hobbits and i thought it was all right. little tidy nice cute quest narratives and i read this i was like what is this because for the first like 100 pages you don't know what the hell is going on um <laughs> yeah. and, and i've heard a few people of my age say that that they they read it when they were too young and and just threw it away and that they've gone back to it and adored it so it might be one that i kind of tally up for a, a holiday when i have a week off this show maybe, yeah. and, and finally get to grips with. 
Yeah. I, I'm, I'm like you. I, I'm sure if I had read it at 15, I would have felt the same thing. Like, well, what is going on? Like, I, this is too much for me. This isn't that you know entertaining. But it's, it is definitely a book for adults, which I think throws people too, because a lot of people think, well, science fiction or speculative fiction that's supposed to be that's supposed to be for kids and teenagers, and it is definitely mm-hmm. an adult read. Um, yeah. And uh, I would also recommend <laughs> that particular book. I would recommend on Kindle. Um, because one of the things, one of the conceits of the book is that it's a translation from some uh, far off time, and he uses a lot of very arcane words, and it's very handy to be able to instantly look those up, as opposed to just you know have a have a dictionary in your lap and be looking yeah. up something every other sentence and go, oh, okay, I know what he's talking about there. But that is a uh, a challenging but enormously rewarding read for uh, for anybody. Well, thank you for that. So I don't think we've had that one recommended before, so it's always nice to get a, a different take. Um, I'm going to ask you a, a second question that I haven't asked anyone before in, in this closing section. Um, sorry to put you on the spot with this. Can oh. you recommend, and this is, this is a purely personal question, listeners, if you get something <laughs> from this, great, but this is just selfishness. Could you recommend um, a go-to book to read about screenwriting? About screenwriting. Or like a guide um, to or where to start. Because I, the other day someone was talking to me about, you ever considered writing a script? And it suddenly dawned on me, I don't even know what the format is. I wouldn't even know where to write the first the first line of text. Um, when, when I was starting, the go-to book that everybody read was a book by Sid Fields. Um and I can't even remember the name of it, but Sidfield was the name of the writer and he broke down the, the format. I don't even know if that's still current because that was a long time ago, but it probably hasn't departed from that too much. Um, in terms of other books, um, well, <laughs> William Goldman has a fantastic book called Adventures in the Scream Trade that is more just f- just fun because it's just talking about the craziness that happened to him as a screenwriter, but he does a little bit um, get into craft and, and what he sees is, is necessary. And he's one of the greatest screenwriters of all time. So mm-hmm. uh, it's well worth reading um, his book. So I would put those two, but um, I, in all honesty, I don't, <laughs> I haven't read the Sid Field book in a very long time. So I might read it now and go, oh my God, this is 30 years out of date. But that was the one that I read um, coming up. Um, I've just looked up Sid Field on, on the internet and he's basically, he seems like he's written several Bibles on the subject. So yeah, he seems like a good place to start. But listeners, if you have any any recommendations where I can start reading about that, do let me know. Wisdom of crowds and all that stuff. Um, <laughs> my last question, Stephen: What truly scares you? Oh, um, let's see. Well, um, I know you get this a lot, but I, I I would say you know first and foremost, anything happening to my children, you know, like anybody you know, uh, anybody with kids is going to say that. And certainly with recent events in my country, that's all the more um, mm-hmm. on uh, parents' minds. Um, and beyond that, I would say, uh, you know, I'm sort of scared of the <laughs> rise of, you know, uh, 
white nationalism in my country, and you know, I'm very worried about what is what I see as a rise of deeply scary sort of uh, fascist elements in my country, um, which I hope don't end up ending our democracy um, without being too dramatic. Um, and if you want something silly, uh, I don't know, super volcanoes. Uh, I'm scared <laughs> of those too. Like, yeah, <laughs> there's one under Yellowstone Park that is like apparently is going to, you know, end us all one day. So, I mean, the I'm one under dramatic. Yellowstone Park may be the only solution to the rise of dickheads in America. I mean, who knows? That one could <laughs> offset the other. Um, That's true. They, that would, uh, yeah. Yeah, we we, we, <laughs> could, we should be rooting for it. In fact, we, we could possibly like, you know, Joe versus the volcano. I wonder if we could sacrifice. Republican senators to it appease it appease the uh, the volcano god with with Mitch that's McConnell. interesting yes in th- instead of throwing in a uh, instead of throwing in a virgin we just yeah throw in a, a, a Republican with deep ties to the NRA that would yeah be exactly good. yeah 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 that uh, seems a perfectly reasonable solution to the entire thing to me um, <laughs> listen Stephen I really appreciate your time on on your holiday so go away and grill things for your family and have a lovely time. Thanks for writing the book and thank you for talking scared. Well, thank you very much for having me on in your show, Neil. It was an absolute pleasure and I, I really appreciate it. Listening to that conversation and knowing me as well as some of you do, what do you expect my review of Friend of the Devil to be? Hmm. It is a hard one this week because... To be honest, the book did leave me a little cold. I think both its failings and its successes are due to Stephen's background in TV comedy. It's insanely fast-paced, unnecessarily so, in my opinion. Each chapter is just a few pages long, and the incidents and the plot movements are kind of burned through without time to properly register. Now, that may be a real bonus for people who want a fun, fast-paced novel for the summer, And that's fine, but it left me unable to really take the story and the characters as seriously as I now think Stephen wanted me to. And that's why I kept bringing up the topic of comedy, because I couldn't work out if this book was a parody or written in earnest. And I'm still not sure, to be honest, and your appreciation of it, I think, will depend on how you perceive that question. The flip side is that Stephen does have an undeniably brilliant ear for naturalistic, funny dialogue. And the best parts of Friend of the Devil are Sam's conversations with certain members of the school, especially the evil administrator and the right-wing Bernard. Stephen's captured that gumshoe wit that I've discussed elsewhere, you know, with Kim Newman in his take on Raymond Chandler and in John Connolly's Charlie Parker books. The dialogue-heavy sections of this book shine, and I'd love to see Stephen embed that aspect of his writing in a more substantial plot. But all of that kind of got me thinking what my role is when it comes to this podcast. I mean, it's my baby. I can do what I want, but I don't want to be that dick. (laughs) When I set out, I had no intention of criticising books because the guests have been kind with their time, their appearances, their thoughtful answers. and, and, And let's face it, I'm the one who's failed to finish a novel. So who the hell am I? And trust me, If I can talk about Jeff Vandermeer's Hummingbird Salamander in glowing terms, then I can say anything with a straight face. I employed Trumpian levels of doublespeak in that episode. But, as Talking Scared has grown, I'm also aware that I do have some small influence over the books that some of you buy, 
which means that I don't want to just be saying everything is fantastic across the board. There has to be some level of integrity and authenticity from me, right? I mean, I just don't want to hurt anyone's feelings in the process. And I am just one reader, remember. It's just one opinion. So more than ever, I'm interested in your thoughts on this book. First of all, did you like it? Did you not? But also on what you want to hear from me. I mean, I'm, I'm still not entirely sure who even listens to these outros. So this may all be moot. But if you are still clinging to the bitter end, tell me, should I be clear about my opinions on a book? Or is it more just a case of ask the questions, monkey boy, we'll decide the rest. You can reach me to answer that question or any other on talkingscaredpod at gmail.com or go the social media route at talkscaredpod on Twitter and Instagram. I just said route rather than root. The more I do this show, the more Americanized I become in my speech patterns. Anyway, also, please, please leave a review if you think this show is worthy of one. And remember to sign up for Talking Scared Patreon if you want more. I am much more outspoken on the Patreon stuff if you like that side of me. And, and I'm just putting an episode together all about what I read on my summer vacation. And there were highs and there were lows. What other news is there to share? Um, the first episode of Talking Bird is in the bag. That's my book by book read along of the Charlie Parker series by John Connolly. The co-host for at least the first few episodes is Angela Slatter, who, it turns out, knows much more about the books than me. Because she's in Oz, and I'm not, we have to recall those episodes when at least one of us is sleep-deprived, which makes it interesting. I'm just waiting for the logo art of all things before setting that first episode live, so you still have a little time to read every dead thing before Angela and I spoil the shit out of it but that will be out and live in June. Next week's episode is a doozy. Ellen Datlow is back on the show and bringing friends. We'll be joined by Nathan Ballingrud, Chickadilly Emilia Mardu, and the big dog himself, Joe Lansdale. And we'll be talking about monsters of all kinds, but especially those included in Ellen's new anthology, Screams from the Dark, which, by the way, is utterly fantastic. So that'll be cool. And after that, it's my long-awaited chat with Tim McGregor, all about mermaids in Lure. Until then, though, play the album backwards, read the words out loud, and keep your arms and legs inside the salt circle. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared. <laughs>